This is Sacrilegious with your host, Gary Latterman. We're back again, and I am so uh, very happy to uh, have someone here to uh, have a conversation with, and especially because of, of the guest that's here. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Ali John Zarabi to uh, Sacrilegious. Ali John is a, uh, a colleague and a friend. He's in the uh, Emory School of Medicine in the Department of Family and Preventative Medicine and whose area of specialization is, is uh, palliative care, among other things. It's great to have you here. You know, you have so many uh, uh, accomplishments and great research interests and, and collaborations. And uh, the one I'm most excited about for the moment is your collaboration with me, which isn't really a collaboration, but we are having some fun here at Emory uh, with a what we're calling a sacred drug salon that we've started up. And that's, uh, you know, partly because of our own interests, but also because of what we're seeing you know, almost around the country at different universities who are uh, having all kinds of initiatives around, especially psychedelics and medicine. And what we kind of have going here is something that's a little more broad-based in that we're looking at a variety of different kinds of drugs and uh, specifically looking at the intersection of of these drugs with uh, primarily medicine, but not necessarily so, and and religion and spirituality. So um, I'm I'm wondering if you might say uh, kind of just a few words on on why you think that's of interest now at this moment, and and why you think there's especially here at Emory an appeal across different uh, areas of interest, different disciplines, different units, and so on. Right. So I can speak for myself and then pontificate about others. For, for a lot of my colleagues uh, in the School of Medicine, in particular, the Division of Palliative Medicine, we see so many patients with death anxiety, people with terror facing the end of life, and not just the end of life, but life with a serious chronic illness, ser- life with a serious mental illness, and then surviving um, a traumatic event, um, including something like living through COVID-19, perhaps a very serious course of COVID-19, perhaps coupled with symptoms and stress of that illness that are enduring threats to their body. And we think to ourselves, you know, we, our toolkit is so limited to help them with both physical symptoms and emotional symptoms. Uh, I finished my training in 2016, which wasn't too long ago, during which I basically was was trained in, and this is very cynical, uh, kind of like Purdue Pharma kind of rhetoric that people can get addicted to opioids if they have a serious illness, if they have cancer, that I can give benzodiazepines and other controlled medications liberally to people, almost seemingly without consequence, and, and for many of my patients who are not at the end of life, and including those who are nearing the end of their life, I see that so many people benefit from certain drugs like opioids and benzodiazepines and others, though oftentimes they're using these drugs to escape and to blunt themselves. So, And that's really the word that I, I keep coming to, the idea of being blunted. Many of my patients use cannabis 
to to blunt themselves from facing the reality and conditions of life, um, whether that is the life that they have here on this earth right now or the afterlife. And because of that, I'm getting to my point, the idea of um, entheogenic medicines, of psychedelic medicines, of medicines that can tap potentially tap into the unconscious to be used as a, a in a model of uh, this kind of drug-assisted psychotherapeutic paradigm between clinicians and patients because of this emerging literature that shows that these kinds of therapies and these drugs coupled with these therapies can help people gain meaning in the face of suffering. Because of all of that, I think so many of my colleagues and patients and you know, in the New York Times, there was a piece, two pieces published this week that one of one of which I think it has over a thousand comments now. Because of that, there's you you feel the ground, the earth shaking almost um, that something is coming. And the last thing I'll say before I stop talking and, and let let you continue, Gary, is because I feel that ground shaking, I'm very worried because with that. Um, can come a backlash in many ways, and many harms can also result from it. And my job as a physician, I believe, is to worry. And I'm, on the one hand, so enthusiastic about what's what's coming in terms of societal change, medical change, and I'm also worried about the inevitable, really the inevitable harms that will happen to people and the ways in which medicine and society will deal with it. That's a lot. And uh, there's uh, a good deal uh, to follow up on, uh, absolutely. And and I, you know, I'll say we do. You know, in our little group, we have a, a good number from medicine, from public health, and also from um, anthropology, history, uh, religion, and so on. Um, so there is a mix, and I I think um, at one level for sure that that uh, this group is tapping into a larger public. A more popular awareness of um, this might be a little bit too strong, but sort of the end of the war on drugs and the new era of the new miraculous drugs uh, to a degree. I mean, especially in terms of what we're seeing in, in popular consciousness of around psychedelics and all that they seem to be promising with all of these studies. And we'll come back to that, but uh, also to get cynical as someone uh you know who's in who's in the study of religion and putting together this podcast called sacrilegious there's a sense in which like the drugs you're talking about that blunt people's experience and provide a coping mechanism to deal with suffering and perhaps become an avenue for meaning making that that's just like religion that's what religion does or part of what religion does. And so, you know, that intersection and trying to find the language to talk about that intersection between medicine and well-being and and what we refer to as theodicy um, and what you were talking about in terms of sort of the problem of, of suffering and, and just sort of um, basic existential questions around suffering and death that you know, you, you, you see this incredible area of overlap that we might be at a moment in which we are, you know, um, again, in terms of, of public openness, in terms of medical interest, in terms of larger tolerance of different substances, at a moment in which we can begin to talk about 
the ways in which uh, religion and spirituality are tied to uh, drug use more generally for my own kind of research interests, but especially uh, in terms of medicine and certainly, uh, Ali John, in terms of what you live with every day in terms of your work in palliative care. Right. So speaking to the idea of blunting and the idea of the opiate as a, as a mechanism to blunt and perhaps a religion as perhaps the greatest opiate of the masses there is, there, there's more and more discussion about the role of suggestibility with the psychedelic drugs. Obviously, set and setting are, are very common things that, that virtually everyone in this field talks about. And something, again, my job as a physician is to worry, and I'm going to re- return to that over and over again, is if you are providing a set and setting that perhaps embodies or embraces a certain cultural worldview, and this is a vulnerable person living in this soup with the, all of these anxiety buffer mechanisms that they have that aren't helping them make sense of their life, and all of a sudden you have this shaman, physician, and chaplain, or whoever else is there with the team, with a Buddha in the room, a crucifix in the room, whatever it is, even, I I don't have to be specifically religious, um, images of nature and naturalism and biophilia or whatever it may be, and then you're giving them 25 milligrams of psilocybin, and then you are there to integrate whatever their experience was into whatever cultural worldview is created between therapist and and patient or subject, there is a huge role for manipulation here. I see, maybe the listeners can't see, Brian Mirescu's book is behind you, um, The Immortality Key, and something, yes, and and Gary's pointing to it right now. And and during this interview, I I watched with him, and, and I haven't finished his book yet, full disclosure, he mentioned perhaps people should spend years studying some sort of religious or spiritual path after which then they have this drug-induced entheogenic experience. And then I wonder, well, what are you supposed to be reading? <laughs> it, it It's worrisome to me, but not so worrisome that it paralyzes me because there's no right way to do this. There, there are multiple, I would say, uh, worrisome ways to do this. And as a physician and as a, a researcher really entering this field, so many of my colleagues and myself really need doctors and nurses to be involved with this really from the beginning. So we're not playing catch up when something to be very dramatic blows up in our face. Mm-hmm. So I really think this is a multidisciplinary interdisciplinary and really exciting journey that we're all embarking on as as clinicians and scholars that requires the role of ethicists, religious scholars, historians, just everyone needs to be having these salons wherever someone is going to administer a capsule of LSD or psilocybin. Uh, otherwise, we're doomed. Sure, sure, right. I mean, uh, and and that too sets up, uh, you know, its own kind of cultural system, where uh, which which certainly ties into historic trends around medicine and and the ways in which people can put their faith in the doctor, the shaman, the 
you know, the therapist. And so those are kind of shifting targets in a sense of where people place their faith. But uh, there is, you, you know, you can talk about the, the um, panaceas and all sorts of uh, placebo effects, I should say. And uh, it's, um, you know, still gets to certain kinds of religious sensibilities around how do I make myself whole? How do I, you know, get through these difficult times? How do I understand uh, my feelings of ecstasy or pleasure um, as well? And, you know, we can see how this is certainly getting tied into and becoming very explicitly a part of some areas of medicine. Right. I recently gave a talk to uh, a bunch of first-year medical students. Um, It was a 30-minute talk on cultural humility and, 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 the challenges with trying to be culturally competent um, in anyone's culture. For example, just a few years ago, Emory School of Medicine had this matching game where like you had to kind of match Muslims with a certain behavior and Jews with a certain behavior. Um, and this was happening in like the 2000s <laughs> because the thought was physicians should be competent in some culture. And for them, culture tended to be religion and someone's racial or ethnic background. Uh, I bring this up because during this talk, I I brought up ketamine and psilocybin and other work that I do. And these medical students were just so excited and they thought, well, this this is the future of what I'm going to be working on. Even though the field is just so, so new, particularly among physicians and I had medical students emailing me emailing me afterwards saying, you know, Dr. Zarabi, I really want to go into palliative care because I want to invoke mystical experiences in patients. And I was like, well, that's great. Well, that's not a thing right now, but maybe when you graduate your residency, this could be a real thing for you. But to them, this is this almost seems normalized because of the conversations of the past five to 10 years in, in the media. The, the next thing I'll add is you mentioned um, something like ecstasy. Just the, the idea that we're introducing ecstasy, ah, the sublime, the, the terrifying into our not just cultural vernacular, but the medical one is, and this is another word, astonishing to me. It is, Completely. It is, it is truly awesome. And, and, and the mechanisms by which we do this, maybe 20 years ago, there, there were, or maybe even shorter, people like Oliver Sacks were, you know, were saying, take your patients to gardens. And now we're having the language, you know, take your patients to a virtual reality garden to have a second life and perhaps give them psilocybin during the experience. So the the, the things that we are imagining in medicine and is is so much grander that, than I could have even imagined five years ago. It seems like it's really part of a, a uh, to use a cliche, paradigm shift or some kind of pivotal uh, uh, moment. And again, being driven uh, for sure by by medicine, by by um, medical research and the therapeutic possibilities, which is promised by a lot of these uh, different substances that were only uh, you know a short time ago demonized or seen as uh, really uh, kind of antithetical in any way to psychological well-being and and health. So that, you know, and and in addition, places are legalizing, so or decriminalizing, and and that too is being um, um, picked up as part of the zeitgeist, I suppose, of what we're living in with this uh, door opening around drugs and and, 
um, particularly psychedelics and their 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 therapeutic uh, promise. But also, like you're saying, there is a, a sort of inevitability or or a, a, a blurring of lines between kind of spiritual, religious concerns, notions of the sacred, and questions of well-being, of health, and and so on. And the medical sciences have not generally been receptive or open to that. And certainly um, someone like Roland Griffiths and what they're doing at Johns Hopkins and, you know, many other now published papers are, again, medical scientific papers are, are embracing mysticism, you know, kind of uh, allowing for the spiritual um, uh, effects and consequences of, of some of these uh, uh, substances. And that's, that's completely new, even though people uh, can be critical of the use of, of mysticism or how folks in the sciences understand religion. But say, if, uh, you, if you don't mind, a little bit about your, your research and some of the, the current stuff um, that you're doing. And maybe, yeah, I'll try to come back and talk about some of the earlier work as well that you've done. But Sure. So uh, we have a grant uh, from Emory University, uh, specifically the Cancer Center, to pilot uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy uh, model, very similar to what is being done at other institutions um, around the country, along with full-service, multidisciplinary uh, palliative care for people who are not at the end of life. So the rationale for this study is that palliative care uh, was born out of really the hospice movement. And the hospice movement was really born out of cancer patients who were nearing the end of life. We've seen dramatic improvements in longevity among cancer patients over the past decade or two with novel therapies. And so many of our patients are now living with quote-unquote terminal cancers for years and years and years. And this really almost resembles the advances in HIV in the 90s, where this terminal disease was transformed for many and not for all into uh, a chronic illness, but not without suffering. So many people continue to have side effects from the disease itself. I shouldn't say side effects, I should say suffering, um, pain, uh, other symptoms, emotional trauma, anxiety, depression, PTSD, demoralization, as a result of the illness itself or from the treatments used uh, for it, such as surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, et cetera. So we are seeing these these long haulers in our palliative practices who, who aren't dying, but have symptom profiles and suffering very similar to our patients who are nearing the end of life, if not almost identical, because they continue to live with that sort of Damocles above their head. When is it going to drop? I'm okay right now. These treatments are working, but I could die tomorrow. Should I go to work? Should I get married? Like, should I, should I, should I live a life this ego-driven narrative, press the play life where I'm going to live into into old age, or should I be living as if I'm going to die tomorrow? And these are not easy questions, existential questions to answer, um, particularly for a physician to help guide a patient through these existential issues. So for that reason, 
are interdisciplinary palliative care teams, which are based in clinics. They're, they're, there are all sorts of versions of palliative care. This emerging version is outside of the hospital, is offered by physicians, nurses, chaplains. Here we call them spiritual health clinicians, social workers, therapists, counselors, and a variety of other professionals. And they follow, follow patients throughout the illness course, from the time of diagnosis, through long-term survivorship, through the end of life and death and then support their families afterwards. So these teams are now pretty well-defined, and they're sprouting across the country. And our hypothesis is that using this model of care, combined with a psychedelic dose of mushrooms, of psilocybin specifically, could help with demoralization or this kind of hopelessness, helplessness phenotype that's similar but not exactly the same as depression, kind of picture for these long haulers. We are going to do this for 10 patients. We are getting our um, psilocybin capsules from USONA, which provides capsules for many of these studies. We are go- and, the, and the system or the model in which we're actually going to administer the, the drug, or this chemotherapeutic as some might call it, is with a psychologist or a physician coupled with a chaplain. And the thought is that the spiritual health clinician or chaplain would be able to really sit with the patient in this spiritual space, in this meaning-making space, perhaps better than a physician, perhaps better than some psychologist. That's not really the question we're asking. The question we're asking is, is this model of care something that is feasible and acceptable? To these patients, and I can't believe we're pulling this. We're going. We are going to pull this off, and we we have the room, we have the infrastructure, we have the money. We're waiting for the capsules, um, which are being manufactured right now, and that's what this study is. It's exciting. Study, yeah, it's exciting. None of us, as far as I know, are quote unquote psychonauts who are involved in this study. I think. I mean, that's a loaded word and perhaps a pejorative if um, that some might interpret that word um, as I think for me, I'm desperate to help my, help my patients. And I think psychotherapy isn't enough for them. And I'm tired of giving them, I'm tired of giving them opiates, cannabis and Valium when there's something out there that might really help. And that, that thing that I, that we think is going to help is not necessarily the psilocybin itself, but it's the psilocybin or the LSD, or the MDMA, or whatever under Ibogaine, whatever psychedelic umbrella drug there is, combined with this entire network of support to help rehabilitate people. I think that's the model that is going to transform palliative care and cause, and cause that quote-unquote paradigm shift we need in medicine. Well, that is uh, hallelujah. That's great stuff, and I'm, uh, I'm excited and uh feeling like we're on the cusp of it for for sure. But uh, let me also just ask, uh, help, what does that mean? What does help mean? Yeah. I mean, so how, yeah, how, how is the psilocybin going to help them? And what, you know, what does help, how do you, are you, I'm sorry, but do you measure help or how do you understand the kind of success or? Help is a loaded term and I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll give two examples that will that will lead to a, a more 
thorough and uh, answer to your question. Um, I had a patient several years ago who was a pastor and came to me with a great deal of death anxiety and asked for cannabis. Um, and we got him a medical marijuana card and he actually showed up to my office vaping in front of me and getting himself high. And I asked him, you know, are very open-ended questions at first. And then they became more specific. Like, do you believe in an afterlife? Yes. Do you think you're going to heaven? Yes. I know I'm going to heaven. Are you afraid of things that you're going to leave behind or, or things that you haven't accomplished? And he said, no. And you know, every, every approach I had to see what's causing him to want to blunt himself I couldn't really get to an answer. He couldn't even make eye contact with me, but there was something there that maybe he could have accessed. Uh, maybe he had already accessed and didn't want to tell me, but there was something there that we couldn't, we, I couldn't get there um, with the remaining time he had on earth and he died shortly after. And at the time I was like, you know, th thankfully he had weed to blunt some of that. I wonder if using an entheogenic drug in a very supportive context in which we had a social worker but to, to potentially see if he had housing issues or financial will issues or any kind of practical concern that he, that he had not resolved or a physician who could have adequately treated his physical pain from a tumor or a chaplain who could have who our, our chaplain, for example, is, is an evangelical Christian, and although they don't minister typically, she she could have, and could have met him in his in his spiritual space using using his religious terminology, but we just couldn't get there. So that's one way I imagine it could help to access some part of his unconscious in a safe in a safe way where we could make some progress, where he didn't have to blunt himself so much. That's one form of, of help that I can answer. Um, oh, go ahead, Karen. No, I get, I mean, I, I get that, and I, I, it makes sense. I mean, that, and, but it's also, if I'm understanding, sort of you're setting up this sense in which, you know, we, you and sort of we use the term entheogen for certain Glasses, you know, certain kinds of of substances that does even in the language of the word itself kind of signify some form of spirituality or religion that we will quickly uh, or many people will quickly associate with psychedelics. But then something like cannabis, you're you're kind of putting that on in contrast with that kind of help and. Yeah, I was going to come back to this, but you've done incredible amounts of research around can cannabis, medical cannabis, and and palliative care. And I'm hearing that you don't see them as helping in this more profound existential way, equally. I, when we do cannabis work in our clinic, we tend to dose, or we, we're not dosing anyone. We are guiding patients on dosing because it is it is technically still illegal. And even in Georgia, only low-dose THC is decriminalized for use with, with people um, carrying a card. So when, when my patients use uh, cannabis-based products, they're using tens of milligrams, so usually 2 to 10 milligrams, which... Um, 
if, if I can. So what does two to 10 milligrams really mean? If it doesn't do much. I, I would venture right? to say. <laughs> Correlate that with something else. It's like 60% THC, like granddaddy purple, like one or two hits kind of deal. It's not like what, what they were using in, in Paris, the, the club de hashishans when they were using doses in the thousands. And those are psychedelic doses. So, of course, I shouldn't say cannabis is not a, psycho, a, a psychedelic. It's not a classic serotonergic psychedelic, but you can certainly take enough of it to trip. My patients are not, actually none of them, the, of the thousands I have who are, who are using it, I'm not aware of any of them who are using doses that high. So I'm talking about low doses that can, pro- I think cannabis is the ultimate palliative drug. Mm-hmm. And that's a loaded statement. And I've been saying it for years. And the reason why I say it is it targets so many things at the same time. So, so many of the symptoms that can cause my patients to to really go from zero to 10 into this catastrophic ruminatory cycle are things like nausea, insomnia, lack of appetite. And of course, uh, kind of this burning, my hands are submerged in boiling water kind of pain. And cannabis can treat all of those things. And when I have patients on 10 different medications for those four things that I mentioned, all of which have a variety of side effects, so many of my patients can come off of those drugs using just a little bit of THC with or without CBD. So because of that, I call cannabis the ultimate palliative drug in that to palliate means to cloak. It's cloaking so many things that can cause my patients to want to die. I have yet to meet a, a, a patient who has had an experience where they have more, I would say, less loss of meaning <laughs> or to create or generate meaning um, as a result of it. The, the narratives I hear more often are, you know, I was able to sit down with my family and finally have dinner after four months and enjoy it, or I can tolerate my kids again and not think about my terminal brain tumor. And I think that's a that it's a qualitatively different experience than a high dose of LSD or psilocybin. Makes sense. And I, uh, I definitely see that distinction and the ways in which the, the cannabis can provide a certain kind of stability and um, ability to sort of maintain uh, order in, in the sort of chaos of, of what it means to be terminally ill or ill in that sense. And uh, that in itself has some spiritual valences, I think, and that, that aren't off on the spectrum toward, you know, mystical transformative experiences, but still can help do what religion kind of generally historically across cultures can do. And that too is kind of keep things stable, make sure people can carry on through the day, you know, and, and feel like they, they have purpose in some way. Right. And that's, that's where, where my mind is so restricted and I'm trying to work on that is, you know, what is a mystical experience? Is it the handful of criteria that, you know, Walter Pankey and Bill Richards came up with so many decades ago? Is it a, a positive experience? Is it the idea of ego death or this loss of narrative that so many people have? Is it the feeling of being reborn? These are these are the words that I have to 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 describe an ineffable thing that I have experienced myself. Right? The, the, how do you use words to describe whatever it is that we've all felt with or without the use of drugs? 
I have several patients who casually say they're they're part of the Church of Cannabis, and then when I ask them to specify, um, you know, is this when you say church, are you being uh, are, are you being cheeky, metaphorical, or is there an actual like physical structure you go to? And actually, I've, I've heard all three of those answers. Um, <laughs> so. I, I recently met with a uh, a priest of a church of cannabis who accompanied one of my patients to clinic, and he wore this Greek Orthodox outfit um, and has a very very robust Facebook page. So I I shouldn't discount that people that many of my patients treat this as religion. I my my bias is i don't take it seriously and what is the bar that i have to have as a as not a clinician as myself for what religion really is to be like sure sure but, you know sure yes you are part of the church of cannabis and of course as someone who practices cultural humility i want to learn more about it and connect with them on that level without being patronizing but deep down i'm like this is is this is is do i take this as seriously as someone who tells me that they're saved well, I uh, I don't want to self promote, but I you should take my intro to religion class I'm teaching this summer, <laughs> or actually you're coming in as a guest speaker. I think I should I should uh, you know, audit your course to talk about definitions because oh boy yeah we go off that's for sure and the line between whatever authenticity and uh, inauthentic uh, practice is a moving target so to speak uh, without without question. Uh, but I, I wanted to say, though, it sounds like you're factoring in religion and spirituality in, in, the, in your study in a way that's very different than just sort of focusing on mysticism or trying to capture that as some key element. Is, I mean, you have much, it sounds like a, this integrative uh, approach of, well, more holistic. Right. We've, been, we've certainly been criticized um, by... Uh, our advisory panel of scientists at Emory who reviewed the protocol that we have too, almost too many assessments and it's going to be a burden. I, I defend it because we need to know certain things. So we're using something called an awe scale to, to measure, I mean, to the best degree that humans can measure, a sense of awe, the, set, the sense of vastness and a need for accommodation that our patients may feel as a result of this therapeutic or hopefully therapeutic experience, we are using the classic mysticism scale, the MEQ, uh, Mystical Experience Questionnaire, that's used pretty consistently in most studies um, because we have to we have to fit in with everybody else, and that's important. And we're also using um, a religious scale, specifically using the word religion um, to capture rel- religiosity, however the person defines what religiosity is, as being potentially separate than how they define mystical experience or spiritual experience or awe or sublime and how this experience influenced how they view themselves as a potentially religious person on on this earth. So we're using very, uh, the semantics of this are very specific and they're very different questionnaires. In addition to that, patients will have, or the subjects will have the opportunity to, to write narrative throughout the study about spirituality and religion, we are using a, um, and our chaplains are going to collect a very detailed religious history from from our patients. And the last thing we're going to do is actually have chaplains and clinicians write about how their spirituality or religion might have changed as a result of being a 
the interventional arm, meaning the, the person providing this therapy, um, something I hear time and time again, and I, I tear up when I hear clinicians talk about it, is, is um, how they've been transformed by bearing witness. So much of the work we do in, clin- in clinical work is bearing witness to, to people's suffering and triumphs as well, is how, how they've changed as a result of bearing witness to their patients' mm-hmm. potential transformations. That um, just the the nature of the methodology of the study is uh, sounds already much more complicated. Has a certain thickness that I you know think will make a great contribution and in, into in trying to really uh, kind of open up, even though it's a small sample, uh, some aspects of this. And just on the study again, is uh, will is there will there be an effort to get people other than Christians? You think you'll try to get a mix of religious backgrounds, or that will depend. That will depend. the 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 thought isn't to recruit religious people specifically. By which I mean, I'm not going to go to the community and say, "You know, are you a, are you a Baptist, uh, African American patient at Grady?" I'm not going to do that necessarily. That's not written into the protocol. At the same time, I'm developing a community advisory board um, for the study to hold us accountable to to our commitment to diversity and inclusion in the study. As, as many people know, the vast, vast majority of patients who are enrolled in these kinds of studies are white, uh, college-educated, um, and identify as agnostic. And the second most common, I believe, at least the ones in the study in New York, um, they were Jewish. And I don't know if really they broke it down to Reform or, or Orthodox or Hasidic in that study. So... Our, our clinic population is quite diverse, and we want our study to reflect that. Um, and there's certainly interest across the board. But I'm not going to try to have parity between you know Muslims, Jews, Christians, et cetera, in the study. Sure. But, but my hope is over time we, we can grow this to something where we can capture much more nuance and diversity in terms of how people define religion. Yeah. Yeah, um, and the other thing you mentioned too, that just a quick follow-up is just you talking about how clinicians' lives are transformed. Uh, you know, you're talking about the clinicians who are administering psychedelics to various patients in various studies, and bearing witness to the. I mean, this is not just minor changes, but profound transformations in people. Right. I mean, in in this in 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 the cosmic sense, in in a sense of outlook, in the sense of again feeling of purpose and meaning, and another understanding of reality or what matters. I mean, these these are the kinds of things you're talking about, right? I mean, I've been doing this work now for five years, and part of me really wishes I could have had a transformative experience by bearing witness, at least in a religious sense. I I was raised by a Muslim father in a very Muslim extended family. My more immediate family was re- was less religious. I mean, from my, from my father, he did not want me to grow up religious because he wanted me to, in, in his mind, integrate into American society as, as successfully as possible in the ways in which he defined success. And my patients routinely ask me if I'm saved. <laughs> 
it comes up in conversations. And and at first I was like, I think I know what they mean. I saw the movie Saved. Um, and I've seen Jesus Camp and like and a kind of this caricaturized <laughs> version of of what that of that question means. And I I speak about religion and afterlife, spirituality with my patients, with every one of my patients. And of course they ask me. And and the most at first, you know, my chest would tighten up. <laughs> like, how do I answer this? How do I give them a succinct answer? And I just really distilled it down to I'm working on it. I used to go home and like read holy books to try to make sense of everything. I stopped that about a year ago. Now I'm reading, I'm reading like, you know Stan Groff's books on LSD now instead of the Bible. Well, those are so, holy. That's a holy book in yeah, some well, way. I mean, that's the holy book. <laughs> those are the that's the holy book that I'm reading right now. Yeah. It's changed over the past few years. But yeah, bear, bearing witness these past five years without psilocybin, right? Just seeing people right on that brink between life and death, trying to make sense of it all, even when they thought they made, that they had already made sense of it all, I think has only made me more more humble. But I was kind of hoping that it would make me a little fundamentalist. I really was, and it didn't. Yeah. You know? Well, I I I, I might be. Um, overstepping here but i think all of that might have something to do with uh, with you with us being in the south uh you're not going to get that question in most of california or the northwest i mean we know that so so this is part of the context in which we work and try to think about these questions around religion but uh, i'd also say and and now having uh, experienced it up close and personal that um you know the work that you do, the work that hospice people do, um, just being, as you say, on the brink of of life and death, or on you know at that uh, that edge, is religious through and through. That's uh, the the mystery. It's the um, uh, impossibility of language. It is really uh, somehow indescribable and yet um, the most real of all realities. Right. And I wonder how many of our listeners have, have seen someone die in the last couple hours and days. Um, I see it a lot. And for me, that, that razor thin edge between life and death, when people start to speak to their ancestors and it's so consistent, it's not universal, but I see it. People looking anxious, looking terrified, looking at peace and just seeing visions and being, and oftentimes I can hear them mumbling their visions. And I just wonder like, well, you know, what is it that their brain is doing? What is it that they're connecting to in these near death experiences that are truly right near death that, yeah. that, that when they don't come back. Right. And so much of what we do in medicine, when we have these medicalized deaths, which is what I'm being paid to do is to blunt that. The patient looks anxious. Give him, give him more morphine. Oh, um, I don't, I don't like the way he looks. He looks uncomfortable. Give him more dilated or fentanyl or whatever it is, Haldol. And I do it to um, assuage the anxiety of of family members and the nurses and the staff and other doctors. But really, I, I the, the two things I wonder is: am I, am I robbing them of the death? they deserve as a human working through these things at the end of life. And the second thing I wonder is if they died before they died, would they be working through these things at, 
or would they already have worked through them? There's a lot of anecdote, and there's one person in Colorado who really wants to study this and is trying to get funding is for, for this is in a veteran's population, for combat veterans with PTSD, do they need more drugs at the end of life? And one question is, if, if you could, you know, one day, maybe in 2030, when this could happen, maybe sooner, if you could give one group of them a psychedelic experience and integrate that and then another one without and see how it all plays out. I wonder what that would look like because so many of us feel it in our bones that that people who've worked it out will have better deaths. And I can live with less guilt <laughs> that, yeah. I'm, that, I'm, that I'm medicating something that shouldn't be medicated. Yeah. Well, that uh, must speak to uh, what I, uh, I imagine to have been the historical role and the predominance of morphine and the use of morphine at the end of life. And that now, uh, you know, doctors, uh, palliative care uh, clinicians, hospice care people are, are looking for other uh, sources to uh, try to bring to patients who are near death to provide some kind of relief or to provide an, another exit out than just the drug-induced uh, so-called peaceful state of morphine. Yeah, you could do it the way Huxley did it and just take a dose of LSD in right at the end of life. You could do it that way too. Not that he can come back and tell us what it was like yeah. or do it before. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's, I guess, part of what you were saying is that that uh, may completely alter your sense of how you face the end. Right. It, it, it will always be a giant mystery but but I think maybe some things could be clarified if we if we study near death experiences with with much more interest. Mm -hmm. Well, and psychedelics are, are one way yeah, to course. focus those studies and thinking about ego death, uh, new attitudes that emerge through the experience and so on. But and we're doing I mean, we're, as a society, it's happening. You know. I'm so glad Bill Richards, and I, I wonder if he can ever participate in your podcast. I'm so glad he's alive. I told him this when I met him a few weeks ago, um, and he was he was one of the pioneers in this work in the mid 20th century, and continues to be right now. Uh, the fact that they all did this work and then it stopped, and then he's alive to see it, see the quote unquote renaissance. It's just remarkable that people can provide these insights to all of the newbies who are entering this field with a great deal of optimism and, of course, some healthy suspicion as well. Sure. Yeah. And he, I think he's about 82 now. He's, he's been around. And, and a lot of that is in his uh, great, useful book. Uh, it's, called, it's called Sacred Knowledge. Yes. So worth uh, mm -hmm. looking at. Absolutely. But uh, Ali John, I think we are good for uh, this uh, session. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it and, you know, the future conversations that are ahead. But thanks for, for indulging me with this. I'm thrilled to have been invited to participate. Thank you, Gary. Okay. Take care. <laughs>